Blog Talk Radio. July 12th, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we typically discuss news, politics, culture, but today we are going to discuss an important book about religion, and I have as a guest for the entire show today, I assume, I think we could probably fill two or three shows speaking about this book. I'm going to be speaking with former prosecutor James Valiant. He is the author of Creating Christ, How Roman Emperors Invented Christianity. So right there in the title, he gives you the thesis, the very controversial thesis to this book. Welcome to the show, James. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Amy? I'm doing fine. Now, over at the blog at DontLetItGo.com, I put a link to your book, which people can get on Amazon after they hear about it today if they haven't done it already. I think that they're going to want to avail themselves of all the tremendous evidence you have for your thesis there in that book. But also I put a link to your other book, The Passion of Ayn Rand's Critics. Do you want to tell those of you know the listeners who aren't familiar with it a little bit about that book as well? Oh, well, that book was is actually a criticism of existing biographies. It's not so much a biography of Ayn Rand as mm-hmm. it is my analysis of the biographies of Ayn Rand by those who knew her, uh, Nathaniel and Barbara Brandon, which were highly critical and, in my view, uh, also highly non-objective. And uh, posting my criticism of the Brandons online, the estate of Ayn Rand became interested and offered me full access to Ayn Rand's unpublished papers. And I, of course, took great advantage of that and integrated a great deal of Ayn Rand's own private unpublished notes about Nathaniel Brandon into the book. And uh, I'm planning to come out with a second edition because there's all kinds of new information uh, once this uh, Christianity stuff, uh, I get a little breather from that. Uh, but, uh, yes, I'm very uh, pleased and proud of that book. Um, and uh, it sort of sets the record straight with regard to some of the Brandon's allegations against Ayn Rand. Excellent. And I can definitely see in both books your background as a prosecutor coming through in terms of the marshalling and presentation of a bunch of evidence to make your case, which is something obviously you did for years and years. So I think your background has has served you well in putting these books together. So, you know, again, the title of your book Creating Christ, How Roman Emperors Invented Christianity, gives the controversial thesis there right in the title. And you've been working on this for 30 years. So 30 years ago, you had an inkling that this thesis 
might be something worth pursuing and, and seeing if it's true. What, what was it that you came across that made you start going down this road? Well, way back in the 1980s, the early 1980s, uh, I was reading Josephus, the historian. He's a first century uh, historian writing for the Romans about the Jewish war of the first century. And in some of his descriptions, an idea, <laughs> dare I say an epiphany, came to me <laughs> like a blinding vision on the road to Damascus, I suppose. And it, I suddenly put two and two together, and I realized... Uh, not just that the New Testament is poor history, but what the New Testament essentially is, why it was written, what it is, uh, really for the first time. And over the last 30 years, no, no, one okay, of the but interesting... let me let me let me back up a little, right? Um, because you know you've got the 30 years of working on this in context. The reason that this epiphany came to you is because in reading the works of this purported historian, you were seeing that the way that history supposedly went, the facts in the real world, had tremendous amount of coincidence with what was actually in the New Testament, right? You saw a, a number of things that were very similar or exactly the same in the two accounts, right? Yes. In brief, uh, it struck me that the relationship between this cataclysmic war that was going on between the Jews and the Romans in the first and second century uh, and it was a cataclysmic war, and it was religiously motivated. And according to our first century sources, in fact, a Jewish source says that the concept of Messiah, the prophesied deliverer of the Hebrews, was the main motivating factor for that war. Mm -hmm. Now, considering right. that, uh, it struck me that the New Testament is a piece of propaganda in that light. It advocates peace, paying taxes, cooperating with the Romans. It uh, strikes right at the very heart of Jewish nationalism, right in the midst of this war. And so it struck me that this conflict, both political, military, and uh, cultural, is uh, got to be a major explanation for the emergence of this new religion. Um, <laughs> truly, it just became almost obvious. When, uh, it's not a question of what the causation is, uh, that there is causation, but simply what the causation is. Surely this messianic war between the Jews and the Roman Hellenistic world, uh, at the very same moment when Christianity emerges, looking so Hellenistic and so pacifistic, is no accident. And I kept pulling that thread for the last 20 years, and uh, several scholars, interestingly, have come into the uh, similar uh, idea. It, I wouldn't say we're a fad yet, but we're certainly a growing new school of thought, in 1996, Professor Robert Eisenman came out with his book, James, the Brother of Jesus, which sort of came to this from a completely different angle, a linguistic angle. And then several years later, Joseph Atwell came out with his uh, Caesar's Messiah, which began to investigate the role of the Flavians. And then a couple of more books have come out even since then. Uh, obviously, way back in the 90s, I established immediate contact with Robert Eisenman, uh, who's a brilliant scholar, and, uh, uh, and I've been publishing on this subject since before 2005. But what's amazing is to see that all of these minds are sort of converging on the same thesis. And so the, there's one piece of evidence in the book that you talk about as sort of being the final piece of the mosaic which is the existence of this Flavian-era coin, right? Now, yes. we have, you, we marshal do, evidence. Do you, do you think, well, I was going to ask you, do you think that you could have come out with this book without that? Do you, I mean, yes. what, how, how would you grade the level of certainty that you had about your thesis before and after the coin? 
I had already achieved near certainty as to the thesis. Well, the, merely the text of the New Testament, when understood in this light, and the history of the New Testament, when understood in this light, is in itself, um, uh, I think, sufficient argument for the thesis. Uh, we can discuss some of the evidence within the, the Bible story. Oh, please, themselves. yeah, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of go through the different categories of evidence as I see it and all that in a second, too. But yeah, con- We also analyze contemporary mm-hmm. Roman philosophy as expressed in documents, literature, uh, and especially Roman coinage. And that led us to a certain uh, image, as you point out, an image that was so paradoxically used by the very first Christians to represent Jesus. And trying to understand the imagery in the earliest catacombs, uh, the, catacomb- the, the Christian art and symbolism of the first 200 years and 300 years of Christianity uh, mm-hmm. sort of put the icing on the cake. There's also secular sources, of course, um, that is to say non-Jewish or non-Christian sources, uh, um, and, of course, Jewish sources themselves, and all of this evidence, literally all of this evidence, uh, converges to say one thing and one thing exactly, that the New Testament is basically Roman propaganda. Now, in the book, you talk about the fact that the Romans essentially saw that they could not deal with the threat of the Messianic Jews militarily only, that it was necessary to have some sort of ideological Response and then, of course, the response would be the creation of Christianity. Um, you know, as this, I think the term is syncretism. Is that right? Of of Judaism. Syncretism is, that is the process whereby different religions become sort of identified with one another. Different gods become mm-hmm. cross-identified with one another. In the prior to uh, the, you know, in prehistoric times, religion and politics were essentially one. They justified the political legitimacy of the rule, for example, the pharaohs in Egypt, or the Hebrew literature, which which explained the special role of God's chosen people. After the conquests of the Persians, and then especially after the conquests of Alexander the Great, that changed. Religion uh, became, because of international trade and, and so forth, and immigration, uh, people began to c- compare notes with gods. And if a god was similar, you've got a sun god, we've got a sun god, well, we may just be calling them by different names, and they're really the, essentially the same deity. And if they have slightly different qualities, well, then we'll just say that the whole deity has both sets, even if they're sometimes contradictory. And that process of, of integrating deities over time is known as syncretism. And, for example, when Alexander the Great uh, conquered Egypt, um, he died, of course, very young, too, too young to keep an empire together, but his generals basically carved up his conquests, and one of his most important generals, Ptolemy, started the last dynasty of Egyptian pharaohs, and in the process integrated Egyptian culture and religion with Greek culture and religion. Mm-hmm. And that's a very famous moment of syncretism. He created mm-hmm. a god, Serapis, out of parts right. of previous gods, both Greek and Egyptian gods, a healer resurrection god. Um, right. It was very much like Jesus, by the way, as we note in the, in the book. Um, yeah. But this process of syncretism over time began in the Hellenistic world, and no longer was religion necessarily a nationalistic uh, endeavor to legitimize the rule, but it became a personal, individual thing, and personal salvation, even prior to Christianity, personal salvation in the afterlife, or better fortune here on earth, such as healing, were things that were sought by devotees of uh, a new and a rising sort of religion uh, in the Hellenistic world, which historians call mystery cults. One of the ironic things about Christianity is that although it's based on Judaism, it takes on dramatic features of a mystery cult. Uh, For example, (laughs) 
Uh, Jesus is a man-god. Now, this strikes to the very heart of Jewish monotheism. Uh, Jewish literature had many, many messiahs. Uh, David the king, or Joshua, who conquered the Promised Land, etc. The Maccabees during the Maccabean Revolt of the 3rd century B.C. But all of them, of course, were human beings. They might be able to perform miracles, but they were certainly human, because there's only one God. (laughs) The Jews are monotheists. And so the idea of a man-god, which Christianity puts forth, is a radically pagan idea. Part man, part god. And typically these mystery gods involve a suffering servant god, who you know, and suffers a terrible martyrdom, but also a resurrection and an apotheosis to become a deity, just as Jesus does. Um, one of them, Asclepius slash Serapis, is actually a healer god, uh, just as Jesus was, who could resurrect the dead, just as uh, Jesus did, and that was uh, provided his devotees the hope of a better afterlife, of resurrection. And so the right. sort of religion that Christianity is is really not Jewish, but its essential features are pagan. And that's really one of the unexplained and ironic things. How did this pagan mystery cult get grafted onto uh, Messianic Judaism, especially in this age of first century conflict? Well, I mean, part of the thing that you talk about in the book, as I understand it, is that when you do turn it into this more pagan mystery cult, then, um, for instance, there's not the requirement to keep kosher and things like that, so that it makes it easier, more attractive for the lay people to, you know, adhere to that religion versus, be, you know, converting to Judaism and um, for many of them living as second class citizens, right? See, this is exactly it. It's another thing that we need to explain. How is it that this age in conflict, cultural conflict between Romans and pious Jews, in which the kosher lifestyle, kosher diet, circumcision, strict Sabbath observance, were the very culturally alienated features that the Romans thought were behind the war? The reason why uh, the Jewish people, pretty much alone among all the people of the Roman Empire that they conquered, uh, could not coexist within the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had followed, a, for its time, of course, they were a brutal empire, they, uh, and crucified and tortured, too. But they also, for their time, followed a policy of pluralism. They would allow the locals they conquered to maintain their culture, their religion, and so forth, even local rule to a certain extent. And over time, they would even offer out the promise of inclusion through citizenship and even maybe membership in the Senate as time wore on in the empire. And this sort of uh, flexible uh, you know, openness to other cultures, this willingness to integrate other cultures, actually explains the longevity and relative peace that the Roman Empire had achieved for a relatively long period of time. The Jews were exceptions precisely because of their strict monotheism. They could not for example, give a nod to the local gods of the Romans. See, if you're just a polytheist and the Romans say, hey, we'll let you worship your gods, just give a nod Mm -hmm. to our gods, it's usually no big deal. But for the Jews, it always was a big deal. They really could not even genuflect to the Roman state gods. And so at first, the Romans, again, tried to be reasonable by creating exceptions. No, the Jews don't have to do that. But even that was enough. That wasn't enough. And right. by the first century, open warfare was almost inevitable. In um, around the year uh, 40, there were disturbances between Jews and pagans in the Egyptian city of Alexandria. By the year uh, uh, 50, the Emperor Claudius had to expel the Jews from Rome because of messianic disturbances. And mm-hmm. by 66 AD, uh, Judea had broken into open warfare. 
and it would result, it is a cataclysmic war, and the importance of this war cannot be underestimated. The Jewish war of the first century is what reduced the one temple of the Jewish people to the wailing wall that it is today. Now, here's, here's a question. Without this conflict with, you know, the Messianic Jews, would there have been basically no Christianity? Would there, or do you think that these Roman emperors would have gone in that direction anyway in terms of, you know, declaring themselves to be deities and et cetera, right? Because as far as oh, I know, no, I, the, the, the I first Roman form- emperor to declare himself a, a, a deity predated the conflict, right? Oh, yeah. I think that a form, let me put it this way, I think a form of monotheistic Platonism was uh, almost inevitable given the direction of the Hellenistic and Roman world. Okay. Um, uh, Platonism was on the rise, and Christianity is really a form of Platonism. You know, Mm -hmm. Jesus says, don't store up your treasures here on earth where where rust and moth get at them, but store them in the imperishable kingdom of heaven. That's, you know... The ideal world is the supernatural one, and the material world is low, corrupt, and dirty. That's Platonism. And Jesus is really advocating a Greek philosophy. Another ironic thing for just an itinerant guy in rural uh, Galilee to be advocating. Christianity is a highly Hellenized, Romanized philosophy. But uh, the truth of the matter is that Jewish monotheism was always more amenable to integration with what was becoming Platonic monotheism. See, the Romans themselves were kind of zeroing in on a monotheism. Some people say as early as hints in Virgil's Aeneid, you can see Mm. the singular of God being used. But certainly as the Roman Empire wore on, despite this Roman pluralism, the Romans sought to culturally integrate their whole empire, despite the various religions and cultures. And so So they began to officially promote a kind of monotheism. First it was, you know, Saul Invictus, the unconquerable sun god, uh, and Mm. that other... Uh, competitors came around, like the the cult of Mithras, which was popular in the military, but it was only open to men. Christianity was open to women and slaves and all comers. And at the end of the day, Christianity was going to win for those reasons. Um, But it easily became the official religion of the Roman Empire under Constantine in the 4th century. Uh, Because it had been, as I argue, a Roman invention. The cultural relationship between uh, Christianity as opposed to Judaism, and uh, 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 Platonic and Stoic philosophy is quite obvious. It was quite obvious to the ancient Roman world. They invented, you know, Seneca, the Roman uh, Stoic philosopher, he was a tutor to the Emperor Nero. Uh, He's a very mystical guy, but his ideas are so similar to Christianity's that Christians themselves forged a correspondence between Seneca and St. Paul, thinking they must have known each other, (laughs) <laughs> because their ideas are so similar. But for many reasons, we know that to be an early Christian forgery. Uh, so, okay. yeah, when you ask, would uh, uh, Christianity have taken over? Something like Christianity would have taken over. It just happened that Jewish monotheism fit hand in glove, in a way, with a modified form of Judaism, which we call it's, Christianity. It's just, it's just in the book you put a lot of emphasis on this being a product of a reaction to hostility from Jews, and maybe they would have gone in that direction without that. That was really my question. Uh, uh, The particular uh, form in which 
this platonic monotheism uh, took shape was the result of this war with monotheism. Right, right, exactly. And so, and so there, and there, it's sort of got the stamp of, you know, this particular conflict shaping it all over. And Absolutely. We can go through some of, so, yeah, we can go through some of the evidence for that. Okay. Yeah, there are profoundly Jewish elements in Christianity as well as profoundly Hellenized, you know, Greek and Roman elements in Christianity. Um, what's paradoxical is that of all the forms, there are various forms of Judaism, but Messianic Judaism that hopes for a military leader to come lead the Jews to independence and, and uh, you know, a victory against the Romans is exactly the opposite concept. It's a militistic, nationalistic concept in Messiah. Mm-hmm. And so to find a pacifistic Messiah, one that advocates internationalism or peace or paying your taxes like Jesus mm-hmm. does is a profoundly right. paradoxical thing. We see in the first century all of the most culturally alienating features. See, one can imagine evolving over time a moderate Judaism that loses kosher features slowly. But what we're asked to believe is that in the first century, circumcision, kosher diet, Sabbath observance, uh, a fear of making graven images, symbolizing God, all of that is being swept away. The, the, a man-god or the worship of a man as a god. All of these pagan elements, Hellenized elements, Platonic philosophy are all being introduced into, into the most nationalistic form of messia, uh, Messianic Judaism in the most paradoxical way. It's turning Messianic Judaism literally on its head, all at once. And, and so you, you're saying that if it had happened on its own, sort of without the intervention of the Roman emperors, it would have been a slow, gradual process, but it's only... Right, but here at the very the, moment of conflict, it all gets swept away simultaneously. And now, pagan now elements how could, could it, introduced could it be, simultaneously. Though, All these mystery it, cult pagan elements are introduced at the very same time simultaneously and paradoxically. Right. So you're saying that even sort of the you know society's response to this conflict couldn't have been that dramatic. It has to be the result of state you know, intervention. Of course, there is all this other evidence that points in that direction as well, we, and we, we should get to it. One thing I want to tell you, James, there are people like me who have just about no religious background at all. So I love objectivists are the ones who absolutely know everything and every little thing has to be explained to them. Christians and religious people obviously know a lot of this background and I can give the shorthand version. <laughs> no. And that, and that's the thing. So for me, it was a tremendous challenge. Um, did I tell you my Andre Agassi story before? Uh, I'm not sure. Tell it again, please. Okay. It reveals my level of ignorance. So many years ago when Andre Agassi was still playing at Wimbledon, I was in London staying at the same hotel that he was. And I was going out for sightseeing for the day and I'm going to get the elevator. And lo and behold, Andre Agassi and his coach hold the elevator door open for me. And they're the only ones in the elevator. It's me and Andre Agassi and his coach. And Agassi used to wear the triangle shape pieces of jewelry like a pennant and an earring and so the only thing I could think to talk to him about was to ask him about that jewelry and I had actually been sitting and watching him play tennis with friends and we you know god he's got that jewelry I wonder what it means so I asked him oh god I'm embarrassed to talk about this so I asked (laughs) him you know you have this jewelry and he says he says it stands for the trinity (laughs) and I say the trinity (laughs) 
<laughs> I have to ask him. And then he explains, you know, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. And I hit myself on the head and say, oh, yes, of course. Now, was it because I was starstruck or was it because religion is so not a part of my thinking and I'm so ignorant of it that it just wouldn't have occurred to me even if I wasn't starstruck you were at that moment, right? So this You're is how blessed. ignorant innocent so, so, to my dear I, I, yes blessedly innocent um yeah, it's, so, uh, so i'm your worst audience right interesting i'm your worst i was gonna say i'm your worst audience here and so oh, in you know, a way you're the... you, well maybe maybe right but i'm 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 your most challenging audience in the sense that i really am going to have to ask you to explain some of the things here now obviously as i went through your book i was able to to get the whole the whole sense of of the case um is it fair for me to say that the t- different types of evidence that you have in favor of your thesis, again, that Roman emperors invented Christianity, first of all, you've got this tremendous textual evidence. You've got the New Testament essentially written as a piece of Roman propaganda with all of the pro-Roman things. One of the things you haven't talked about yet is that uh, praises a centurion, which, you know, with having faith that exceeded any Jew, for example, right? Um, there, it's More than one so, gospel. Jesus says that uh, this Roman, not just a Roman, not just a Roman soldier, but a Roman centurion has not only great faith, but faith that is greater than any contemporary Jew in this age of war and rebellion against uh, Rome. The Gospels right. were written probably just in the wake of the first Jewish war. Right. Um, and that's just one example. Jesus not only, ad- and St. Paul both, advocate paying taxes. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to philosophically say, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and God mm-hmm. that which is God's. Jesus specifically says, in this age of rebellion, that there need be no conflict between the requirements of the Jewish God and the Roman state, Caesar. And uh, uh, he goes further. He befriends tax collectors. He befriends prostitutes, the very sort of unclean persons that the Romans are dragging in. In fact, every sort of unclean person that the Romans drag in, Jesus uh, befriends, tax collectors in particular. Uh, uh, yes, uh, the, the, perhaps the story that's per, the, far the most vivid of them all is the trial of Jesus. At the trial of Jesus, in a completely hatched event, Jesus is, of course, betrayed by one of his own, Judas, mm-hmm. denied by one of his own, Peter. So he's out there on his own because of his you know, own followers. And then he's, of course, convicted of violating the Jewish law by the Jewish committee, the Sanhedrin, in a midnight kangaroo court. They take him, according to the story, to the Roman governor, Pilate. In all four Gospels, this is the story, and in all four Gospels, Pilate declares Jesus... Excuse me for the sound. It'll go away. It'll hit twice more and then go away. Forgive me. Okay. Uh, in all, uh, all four of the Gospels, Jesus, Pilate declares Jesus to be innocent, no less than innocent. Um, it is only the Jewish crowd that three times demands Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, wow. uh, obviously, yeah. that's an artificial three-time demand. We know the entire story is artificial because... Josephus tells us that Jews were allowed to execute people and enforce their own laws. He cites the edicts. In fact, in the Gospels themselves, Jesus interrupts the stoning of a sinning woman. They're they're enforcing the Mosaic law by stoning the sinning woman, and Jesus famously says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. 
Well, mm-hmm. there the, the Jews are executing one of their own for violating the Jewish law, just as they could have done with Jesus, just as the edicts that were issued at the time allowed them to do. So the whole Pilate story is fiction. There's no reason for them to bring Jesus to Pilate. They say, we have no law to put a man to death. Nonsense. They could have beheaded him, like John the Baptist was, or stoned him, like James the Just was. But no. So Pilate is only designed for two things. So that there's this thrice artificial, thrice demand by the Jewish people to insist on Jesus' crucifixion, so that Pilate can say in all four Gospels, I find no fault in him. Pilate melodramatically washes his hands, and uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, his version uh, is unique. He has the entire Jewish crowd collectively taking the blame for the crucifixion. His blood is on us and on our children, the very generation that lose the Jewish war. Uh, Now, that is, of course, the source of a lot of anti-Semitism for the last 2,000 years. When Mel Gibson right, and, and, movie, and at the time, at the time, this conveniently serves the purpose of the Romans, who essentially, you know, they've gone, I guess, already at this time through the military defeat, but they would also like to keep them shamed and down, you know, and, and dispersed. Well, there's, right? there's two things you need to do right in the wake of the Jewish war, right? You need to justify the Jewish defeat and mm-hmm. the Jews, you see, killed their own messiah. What a perfect justification for their defeat at the hands of the Romans. And the second thing is to exonerate the Romans. Exonerate the Romans maybe of all those crucifixions. Because remember, the Jewish war involved thousands and thousands of people being executed in that horrible way. So there it is. The Romans are justifying their behavior, and yet they are also being exonerated. I'd ask it like this, Amy. Who except the Roman government would have an interest in exonerating the Roman government. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yes. Um, it's it's not quite as blatant as the passage from the Quran that I've discussed with you. You know, Muhammad giving um, etiquette advice or whatever to people who come right, to his house right. for dinner. Right. Um, but it's you know cause this is more important. This is something way more important than that. But it but it it, it has that level of self-servingness that you think is not worthy of a truly religious text. Well, there's literally, well, most, let me put it this way. There are Christian scholars working out there today who are pious Christians who really have a hard time accepting the upshot of modern scientific analysis. I I really put only on the radar screen what are known as critical scholars. The upshot of critical scholarship is that the Gospels are fiction. Listen to some of the things that happen in the Gospels. We're told in the Gospels that Jesus said something like, Pick up your own cross and follow me. Now, mm-hmm. before the crucifixion, how are Jesus' followers to even understand what that means? Pick up your own cross? Jesus right. hasn't even been crucified. No, it's far more likely that those words were inserted into Jesus' mouth at a much later date when crucifixion was already seen as a symbol. Right. Uh, for example, or even when they share the same source. Uh, blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, which is it? Did Jesus say both slightly different versions, or has at least one of our gospel authors taken liberties with the original? So it's not just that Jesus is said to perform miracles, whether miracles, he calms the storm, exercises demons, he's resurrected from the dead, he heals the sick, he resurrects the sick. Uh, So there's fabulous things that were done to the biography of Jesus. But even apart from those fabulous things, words of Jesus are being inserted into his mouth, as critical scholars have long observed. Mm -hmm. More than that, 
one of the major sources for the Gospels is the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Exact descriptions from the Hebrew Scriptures find their way in the New Testament. Uh, why is it that, you know, we all know the Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston, all the babies being slaughtered at the beginning because the deliverer of the Jews is prophesied to be born? Well, the same thing happens to Jesus. Herod kills all the babies, right, in the Matthew Nativity story. Isn't that just an echo of the Old Testament to show that Jesus is sort of just like the new Moses? Or when Mary gets the, told by the archangel Gabriel that she is lucky and will have Jesus, she praises herself and her fortune in the exact same way almost that a lady in the Old Testament praises her the good, good fortune in getting pregnant. Now, so now, why, if there was a material about a historical Jesus... Are the authors of the Gospels relying on Hebrew material for their biography of Jesus? Sure. Why are and, they contradicting and, each other? Why and, are they inserting and, words into the mouth of Jesus, uh, in addition to all this fabulous, miraculous stuff that they're inserting? And the Gospels were written by the end of the first century. So this stuff was happening within living memory of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right. If right. there was a historical Jesus then the authors of the Gospels were taking dramatic, fictionalizing liberties with it. So it doesn't matter whether my theory is true or not. The critical upshot of, uh, you know, scholarship is that the Gospels are not history. They cannot be relied upon as history. They must be interpreted, well, like Jesus' parables must be interpreted yeah, I mean, symbolically. So, so, so the two things we have here is we have, in terms of the Roman emperors, the self-serving nature of what you've got in the New Testament in terms of the Gospels, it seems not to be at all an accurate history. In terms of the textual evidence part of your case, another thing that you talked about was correspondence of Paul and James during the time that there was a dispute between them and, in effect, the lack of reference to anything that Jesus might have said as, as pointing out as significant. Can you explain a little bit about the significance of that correspondence for it's not so much correspondence between james the just and and saint paul uh, no not between them but it was it was uh independent correspondence between paul and other people right yeah exactly galatians and the christians the christians of 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 galatia the city of galatia so his letter to the galatians paul is a very very revealing first let me give a little background uh there is a near scholarly consensus, although there's arguments, obviously, uh, here and there, that many of the letters in the New Testament that are ascribed to Paul were not written by Paul. Although they say, from Paul to so-and-so, the letter itself was probably written at a later date. Mm -hmm. Um, We do, however, have identified a core group of uh, letters which scholars believe may well have been written by Paul. They were written before the Gospels, they were written definitely before the Jewish War, and uh, in my view, <laughs> a lot of people still say probably. One of those letters is Galatians, uh, and it's a very revealing letter because it reveals a hostile argument going on between what we think of today as Christians. Uh, Paul says he confronted Kephas, Paul, to his face because he was already condemned. And he, those people who are considered to be somebody are really nobodies. And Paul insists that he got his gospel from no man and from no human authority, but from a direct personal revelation mm-hmm. of Jesus Christ. We learn that the conflict between Paul and the pre-existing, what he calls apostles, are over things like kosher diet and circumcision. Mm-hmm. Well, if that's the case, then we have, of course, a certain problem. If the gospels are telling the truth, 
then Jesus had already dismissed kosher diet as an issue. Jesus in the gospel says, nothing that you put into your body is pollution or corrupt. It's only what comes out of your body that's corrupt. Well, that seems to sweep away the entire Jewish purity law. If Jesus had truly cavorted with centurions and swept away the kosher dietary laws, then what, A, why would Paul still need to be arguing with earlier right. Christians about the matter? B, why doesn't he simply cite Jesus? Y'all remember right. what Jesus said and did, right? Exactly. But no, exactly, he does because, not. Right. The no, gospel let me submit dated the, as... Right. Like many scholars, and there's been a whole direction of scholarship over the last hundred years that sees St. Paul as really the creator of Christianity, uh, in the sense that he is the first person that we know of that spoke of Jesus, whether there was a historical Jesus or not is unclear to me, but he was the first person who spoke of Jesus as a god, Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ. And he mm -hmm. also contains elaborate arguments as to why uh, we, uh, Christians no longer need to follow kosher dietary lifestyle, uh, circumcision in particular, or eating with Gentiles, things like that. We are now free in Christ, he argues. Moreover, he claims his uh, authority is a direct revelation that occurred after Jesus' death. He never claims to have known Jesus personally, and yet that's the oldest Christian material we have. And unfortunately, we lack anything we know with certainty to be Jewish Christian material, the material of James and the people that he's criticizing. But they apparently were Torah believers. And that, in my mind, would make them, of course, Messianic Torah believers. And that would make them, in my mind, the ideological background for the Jewish war. Right. Now, you were saying, in, in effect, what Paul was doing was trying to attract the Gentiles to his version of, of Christianity. And it, well, the Romans kind of... were afraid of Jewish proselytism. Jewish missionary mm -hmm. activity was, was beginning, and some pagans were beginning to like Judaism at, a very, at the very moment when Judaism was causing all these terroristic disturbances, and they were about to break out into warfare. Uh, and today. so the Romans were yeah. very concerned about both radical Judaism, Messianic Judaism, as they should be, because it's right on their, the border with their great enemy, the Parthians. And they were concerned about uh, uh, missionary activities, uh, it, you know, conversion of uh, Gentiles within the Roman Empire. So Paul struck at the heart of that. It isn't it interesting. Right. Paul, who had once persecuted Messianic Jews, is now converted overnight in a blinding mystical vision on the road to Damascus. And now he's one of them. And even though he's one of them, he wants them to turn their religion on, the he on its head. And he's arguing with them how kosher lifestyle should go away and how he should worship Jesus as a god. So he's trying to attract them away from their version of Christianity as he sees it and then also to a pro Roman. Attract, right. Yeah, Paul, in another one of his authentic letters, Romans, chapter 13, could not be more clear. Obey the state, obey the government. Rebellion is a sin. Pay your taxes. We obey the government because they're God's appointed agents on earth. Um, do, you, do, you, do you get the sense that he already existed and that the Roman emperors found it convenient to help him? Because one of the things you talk about is that he gets official protection and such, right? Um, I am of the position that the recent scholars, Theus Vosculin and uh, Rosemary Sheldon, in their book Operation Messiah, uh, are of, and I've always thought this, when one reads the book of Acts and the letters of Paul, it becomes clear that Paul is not so much in Roman arrest as he's in Roman protective custody from the hostility of Jews who are after his throat. 
Okay. Over and over and over, it's the Jews who we're told that Paul is being attacked by. And that makes sense. Paul is saying, ignore kosher diet, ignore circumcision. And he's doing this among Messianic Jews. So, of course, they're after him constantly, and that makes perfect sense in his letters and makes perfect sense in the book of Acts. And the Romans are constantly, quote, arresting him to put him in protective custody. It's a strange kind of protective custody because he's allowed to preach. Now, if you've been arrested by the Romans for causing disturbances, I don't think they'd let you preach to the crowds. Although today criminals can be on Facebook, right? So I don't know. Exactly, exactly. No, no, no. Paul is protected by the Romans. Paul declares his own Roman citizenship. Paul assures that the Roman collaborator King Agrippa and his sister uh, Berenice are in fact uh, good, good people. They become close to being Christians as far as he says. Off to Nero he goes, and uh, his actual fate we don't know. Uh, but let's say that the uh, reaction from the Jews had been so hostile as to cause great violence. Let's say his arrival at Rome uh, was a contributing factor to, say, the great fire of Rome in 64, which Nero blamed on Christians. Well, that would demonstrate to, to the Roman government that he'd outlived his usefulness, and that, like many double agents, he was executed by the Roman government itself because he was now more of a problem than a help. In his time, Paul's unique mission to the Gentiles was a failure. He was a mole within the messianic movement of Jews, which, of course, was the militant movement of the Jews. And that okay. failure to pacify them, they did break out into open warfare after his uh, uh, efforts. That failure to pacify them at the time, however, planted the seeds for something that would become Christianity. After right. The and do you, do you think that he worked at all with Josephus in helping to formulate some of the material or no? It's difficult for me, if there was a Josephus, and that's a problematic thing. There was somebody who wrote his material, that's true. Okay. <laughs> his own, one of the things Josephus left us is an autobiography. It is a particularly serious document with some particularly interesting echoes to the New Testament. Like Jesus, Josephus impressed the, the, the scholars at the temple when he was just a lad. Like Paul, he had a suspicious shipwreck on the way to Rome. He has a, a similar background to Paul as a Pharisee and yet messianic. And so it's difficult for me to believe that if there was a person, Josephus, that he did not know Paul. Right. On the other hand, uh, uh, Josephus himself may be an odd composite. Just like the New Testament echoes the Old, well, consider this. In the Old Testament, we have a character named Joseph who interprets mm -hmm. the prophetic dreams of a pharaoh to mm -hmm. save the Jewish people. Well, Josephus interprets his prophetic dreams to a foreign emperor, and that, quote, saves the Jewish people as he sees it. So, I in see. effect, he's an echo of the Old Testament, just like the Bible echoes Jesus as a New Testament uh, revival of the past. Okay. So I wonder, so frankly, that's enough to cause, I don't know for sure, but it causes me suspicion as to the real identity of who this Josephus was, a Jewish priest who later became a collaborator for the Romans. Right. Now let's, let's get into this kind of next category of evidence as I see it, which is, I'm calling it historical coincidence or other events and, and facts. And one of the things is this Emperor uh, Vespasian, is that how you pronounce it? Vespasian. Okay. That's Titus Flavius Vespasianus. You, obviously, you have been in this for 30 years, and I'm just struggling. But 
you talk about the fact that he performed the same miracles as Jesus did in the same place. Well, not in the same he, place, but uh, he, well, well, one of them was way. in the same place. Wasn't one of them in the same place? Uh, not in the same exact place, but they were the same exact miracles. Okay. Um, okay. Example: Jesus, for example, we were told uh, cures the blind with his spittle, or spittle mixed with mud. We're told that he cures weathered hands with his touch, for example. These are the very miracles that that, Jesus, that uh, Vespasian performs. Now, there's a lot of very interesting things to note about Vespasian's parallel miracles. One is that Vespasian claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. Mm-hmm. His own propagandist was this historian, Josephus. This historian, Josephus, says, well, you know, the real reason why the Jews rebelled was because of their messianic prophecies. It was a hopeless rebellion, of course. They failed, of course. And, of course, the true Messiah is my boss, the Roman Vespasian. Mm-hmm. You'll notice that Vespasian, who began just as a humbly-born general who was putting down the Jews for Nero, well, after Nero's death with all those armies, he becomes a leading candidate for emperor, and he prevails. But he declares himself emperor when he's still in Judea. So Josephus says, look, here's a ruler of the world that came from Judea. He is right. the Messiah. Whoa, right. not a Jew at all. Kind of like Jesus declaring the faith of a centurion being so great, greater than any Jew. Josephus is doing a similar thing. He's one-upping all their messiahs. All the rebel leaders who'd rebelled against Rome in the recent war had claimed to be sort of messiahs. One claimed to part the, that he'd part the Jordan River, etc., etc. Well, against all those rebel leaders, the expected sort of Jewish messiah, uh, Josephus is saying, no, my boss, the Roman emperor, who went who was first a general who defeated the Jews and then went on because of that to become the emperor is clearly the Jewish Messiah of prophecy. Now, right. that's a very curious fact right there. The fact that he comes from humble background, the fact that he performs identical miracles to Jesus, and mm-hmm. let's consider this. Jesus, you have to sort of take a pause here and take a deep breath. I know I'm loading up a lot of facts for your poor reader or your listener. Uh, but uh, in the Gospels, Jesus himself says that his glorious second coming will happen within living memory. Right. Well, that is a cosmic error on Jesus' part. You know those weirdos with the, with the sandwich boards, the end is near? <laughs> the yes. end is near. Yes. Well, Jesus has to be accounted the first one of those guys to get the second coming, the timing of the second coming wrong. Jesus said, my second co- glorious second coming, there are some of you listening to me who will see the glorious second coming. Furthermore, Jesus associates that second coming with the destruction of the temple. Right. What did Titus, his son, do? Yep. They destroy the Jewish temple. Jesus says, my glorious second coming will happen with the destruction of the temple. How, and the Gospels, furthermore, were almost certainly written within the Flavian dynasty. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and that's and that's later. That's after this destruction and everything. So it exactly. So it appears that. But the let me God- let me ask you a question related to that. Um, you talk about Jesus in effect replacing the temple, and I didn't understand that probably because again my lack of religious background. In what sense did he replace the temple? Well, the great cataclysmic event for the Jewish people in the last two thousand years is the destruction of that temple. And you can see when pious Jews are making their prayers at the Wailing Wall, even today, the, the symbolic importance is overwhelmingly the most important place and thing for the Jewish people. The destruction of that temple was a cataclysmic event psychologically for the Jews. 
if you're one God's one chosen people and you defeat you're defeated by foreign polytheists that's a problem God isn't rewarding those pagans he's punishing us he's punishing us what did we do wrong and that's what the Gospels provides an explanation for even as it provides a justification for the Roman destruction of the temple and remember what Jesus said Jesus provides a moral justification for the destruction of the temple in the Gospels. He turns over the temples and says, you guys have turned it into a den of thieves. And who are the you guys, he means? Not the Romans, but mm. yes, Jews. Who were, Roman money was impure. It was pollution. It had the faces of gods and Caesars on them. So the Jewish priesthood required that you exchange the money at a slight fee to buy the sacrifices required at the temple. As far as the Romans were concerned, that's a giant ripoff. And, of course, it was a religious way of raising money by the temple. So Jesus says, you guys, the guys enforcing the Jewish purity law, have turned the temple into a, a den of thieves. So it provides wow. a moral justification, not only with his own execution, at the hands of the Jews, in effect, but also saying why it's become so corrupt. And then the Romans, of course, destroy the temple. And, of course, Jesus says, don't worry, you don't need a temple. He says in, his, in the Gospels, destroy the temple, and in three days build another one. Well, in three days he's resurrected. It can only mean I am the replacement of the temple. I see. Okay, that okay. That was the missing piece for me. Sorry. And you see, in the temple what happens is animal sacrifice. Since Jesus has been crucified, he's the final sacrifice. Right. This semi-divine human sacrifice is itself the last sacrifice required, and henceforward we don't need a temple. Jesus replaces, he is the Lamb of God, you see. A lamb was killed at Passover. He is the Lamb of God, the sacrifice, the animal sacrifice we no longer need. Isn't it okay. ironic? It harkens back to an even more primitive example of human sacrifices propitiating the gods. But Jesus' human sacrifice require, no, no, means that we don't, don't need to do these animal sacrifices at the temple anymore. Who but the Romans would have such an elaborate justification for explaining why the Jews deserve to have their own temple destroyed, why it was morally corrupt from the mouth of Jesus himself. In fact, Jesus mm -hmm. sort of commences the attack on the temple the Romans finish, right? Right. And, it, of course, explains why you guys don't even need your temple anymore. Because you don't have to do these sacrifices anymore. Okay, so, so that's some of the sort of historical and, and event evidence that I've got listed here. Another thing that you talk about is that this same family of Roman emperors, uh, the line of Roman emperors, I guess, that's responsible for inventing Christianity, also is the one that produced the first sent the first pope, a pope in the first century, is that right? <laughs> well, one of the first popes, depending on, there, there were no first century popes, obviously, or even second century popes, because there really was nothing you and I would recognize as the Catholic Church. Okay. However, however, there were leaders, and the important leaders in the important centers, like Rome, Alexandria, and so forth, uh, became important, or in Antioch and Syria, became important, especially as time went on, the important uh, leaders of the whole Christian movement. But as a tradition of popes developed, uh, depending on the list you get by the 4th and 5th centuries, St. Clement of Rome is said to be one of the first century popes, a success, either 3rd or 4th, depending on how you judge the matter. Um, and he is a nephew of, or, you know, nephew of Vespasian, a cousin of Titus, his son. He marries okay. a daughter of Vespasian. Um, and he is executed, interestingly enough, according to the 2nd century historian Suetonius, 
for, quote, adopting Jewish ways. Hmm. And so the nephew of Vespasian named Titus Flavius Clemens is executed for adopting Jewish ways, just as St. Clement of Rome is flourishing and, according to tradition, gets martyred. His wife, wow. St. Domitilla, right? Now, mm -hmm. Eusebius is confused about this Domitilla character. It's either her or a member of her family later on. But this St. Domitilla gets banished, and whoever she is, the oldest Christian archaeology is her tomb. Okay, the catacombs great. of St. Domitilla are the oldest catacombs uh, in Rome. And, and we recognize them as the earliest catacombs of Rome because of the symbol we mentioned earlier, the cross. It is both a symbol for St. Clement, a symbol for the Emperor Titus, the son of Vespasian, and the most important early symbol that Christians used to represent Jesus. Right. Now, I was going to ask you a question because this is one of the pieces of evidence that shows this coincidence between the line of emperors and, and Christianity. However, could not this family member just have been some sort of rebel who became a Christian or something? So even though she was part of the family, it wasn't that she the happens that she's the granddaughter and the niece of the true uh, Messiah. It happens that the, the Jewish friends of her family appear in positive light in the uh, Gospels, which are suddenly Hellenized and pro-Romanized. Okay. It just so happens that her no, no, no. I'm just you know what you do. You you go through and you read and you say, okay, well, you know, could this be because of X? Um, it, you know, like you say, a closing argument. The defense attorney typically, when he's got a guilty client, will say, well, this piece of evidence can be explained this way, and this piece of evidence can be explained this way, right. and this piece and so forth and so on. The prosecutor, if he's got a strong case, stands up and says, yeah, there's you know, a half a dozen explanations for this. You know, there's actually one explanation. The guy is guilty. And very much the same here. We do have some very powerful evidence, such as the Pilate story or the Centurion story, or the whole ideology of the New Testament. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. You know, the entire ideology. Uh, you know, repeatedly in the New Testament, slaves are told to obey their masters. At the very moment when hundreds of thousands of new Jewish slaves are being uh, enslaved by the Romans. Uh, even harsh masters, even when the masters aren't looking. You can just put your finger down almost at random in the New Testament and see it for the rank Roman propaganda that it is. But even right. apart from that, all of the evidence points in the same direction. The Talmud, for example, the earliest reference, now of course they ridicule the idea of the divinity of Jesus, they're Jews, uh, monotheists, real monotheists. And so they ridicule the virgin birth, of course, and they uh, say that Jesus was not born of God, but of a Roman, a Roman soldier. So one of the earliest references by Jews that we have is sort of in code telling us that Christianity is not just Roman, mm. but part of the Roman war effort. Okay, okay. You so look, whenever you, you put your finger down at random, uh, let me just think of something off the top of my head. Let's take this, the parable of the Good Samaritan. There's this poor guy, been beaten and robbed on the side of the road. The Jewish priest goes by, eh, I don't want to touch him. The Jewish Levite goes by, eh, I don't want to touch him, the other side of the road. But here comes a foreigner, a Samaritan. And a mm -hmm. Samaritan takes him home and takes care of his injuries and feeds him soup and gets him all cleaned up and dressed up. Moral of the story, the good foreigner. Right. So you can just put your finger down at random in the New Testament, or basically put your finger down at random in the pagan evidence, or the archaeological physical evidence. It's all consonant with one thing. Now, of course, there are 
classic objections to this immediately. Oh, well, weren't the apostles persecuted and executed, and weren't Christians, uh, you know, persecuted by the Romans? Right, right. And and that was a, a pretty significant chunk of, of the book where you were explaining why it really wasn't true that the Christians were persecuted, that there was very little persecution Well, let me ask of, you circumstantially. Right? Let me ask mm-hmm. you circumstantially. Someone comes along and says, slaves obey your masters, even when they're not looking. Pay your taxes. Taxpayers can be befriended. A centurion has the greatest faith of all. Blessed are the peacemakers. You know, turn the other cheek to to physical aggression. Love your enemies. Um, um, You know, if a person came along advocating peace and tax-paying like that and slaves' obedience like that, don't you think the Romans would have embraced that philosophy? Yes, I mean, definitely. Here, here, let me let the me. The idea ask that this. the Romans found everything to be objectionable here is kind of silly, and that sort right. of explains no, wait, why. But the, let me let me ask you this question, right? Because um, you you were saying that the fact that in the New Testament they talk about the Christians being these obedient people, these peaceful people, right? They're different from the Messianic Jews, right? That right. this are you not? This, you're a new kind of Messianic Jew. Right, that you and and that this is evidence that uh, you know those people were not a problem, and that they would not be the subject of of persecution. What if positive evidence to that effect? We have right, right, right. in the but what first if, what century if, the emperor Trajan if, corresponds with right, one of right. his governors so listen, and James, says, James. "Do not persecute Christians." Sure, sure, and and I, and I saw I saw that uh, letter the letter as well when there the correspondence about how do you treat them and you know. We try not to persecute them as long as they repent or whatever. Um, but what if the New Testament is telling these Christians how to behave ideally? So it's not that they were these docile people that were not causing problems for the Romans, you know, the, these Christians. Uh, but in fact, there were a number of these Christians who were unruly, but the New Testament was telling them how they should behave in the same way that Muhammad in the Quran, you know, is is purporting to be Allah, right, in the Quran, Muhammad. But Muhammad is trying to tell people how to behave themselves when they come over for dinner at his house. And why is he putting that in there? He's, t- he's putting that in there because they were rude. You know, they came over early. They stayed too late. They were horrible. And that's why they put that in the Quran, right, is because they were just rude bastards. And so, so the average Jew is praising the faith of a centurion and saying, pay, pay your taxes and befriending taxpayers. <laughs> just uh, Well, but I think think... Maybe, maybe it was, you know, aspirational <laughs> instead of Well, that's the problem, I think, Amy, right? and I think why the evidence has gone undetected for 2,000 years. It's been sitting under our nose, rather obviously, for 2,000 years. And the reason why I don't think that this two and two has been put together is because Jesus' words are seen as a form of moral idealism. It was mm-hmm. only by penetrating that, with the help of Ayn Rand, of course, by penetrating this a bizarre, life-hating uh, 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 philosophy of altruism that you begin to see that there's nothing benevolent about this at all. What Jesus, sure. for example, when Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, what he's saying is that it's wonderful to be a slave. When Jesus says, he who is first shall be last and the last shall be first in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, slavery and martyrdom are a great opportunity. Um, when Jesus says, uh, don't store up your treasures here on earth, when Jesus suggests becoming a eunuch for the kingdom of Christ, give up sex, 
when Jesus says, give away all your money to the poor and be you know, poor. It's the typical platonic dissing of this world, which means sacrifice it all for the next. That's true. And that preexisted Jesus. Jesus goes one further. Jesus says, when you're hit on the side of the cheek, you can't run away. You can't block the blow. You have to submit to being hit and hit again. Now, that is right. bizarre self-immolation of the most extreme. Pick up your own cross and follow me. Die if necessary. Now, it is curious that persecution is discussed right there in the Gospels when very few people have been persecuted, and yet it's considered a giant event. Let me, mm -hmm. let me suggest that uh, the persecution in the first and second centuries was persecution of the Messianic Jews who were rebelling against Rome. Mm -hmm. Right. They, in effect, were persecuted for the name of the Messiah. They, in effect, were Messianic Jews who were persecuted for the extremity of their belief, and that did impress the Romans. Under torture, these Messianic Jews refused to name any man their lord, said Josephus. They would refuse to blaspheme. That's how religiously intense they were. Um, indeed, the stories of the Jewish war show the religious fanaticism involved. When Masada, the great fortress, hilltop fortress of Masada was taken, rather than be captured, they all killed themselves, men, women, children, uh, in mass suicide rather than be captured. Uh, um, so what the Romans were dealing with was uh, a war of religious fanaticism that had to be dealt with ideologically speaking. And so the extremity of Jesus' altruism, combined with obviously rank political aspects, pay your taxes, I love taxpayers, centurions are cooler than anyone. Oh, and by the way, it's the Jewish crowd that made me be crucified, not the Roman governor who thought I was innocent. Right. Um, you know, and then when you compare it to Roman propaganda at the time, I mean, uh, Christianity in, in some ways is more in common with Roman philosophy, Stoicism, and Platonic philosophy than it does with Judaism. Um, sure. in, in fact, in more than one way. As I pointed out, it's not only Platonism, <coughs> excuse me, uh, but it has this man-god, which is a, you know, a direct assault, <laughs> if you will, on Judaism in a very, right. very pagan element. It has graven images in direct contradiction to the Ten Commandments, mm -hmm. you know, anchors and then crosses and <laughs> all these symbolic yeah, representations I wanna, of God. I want to I get on to that, right, because this is, in effect, the, the, the linchpin um, but but you're saying in, in effect that this is it, it's very different from Judaism. I want to let you finish your thought here. Go ahead. Romans were aiming at a specific target group too. I don't mm -hmm. think the Romans thought that this would be the end of the problem with Messianic Jews, but I think that that at first they were attempting to pacify the Roman Jews and turn them into more paganish, um, uh, pacified, tax-paying, obedient slaves if necessary. Um, and so it wasn't aimed empire-wide, just at Jews and the people Jews are, are actively converting, at least originally. But its success, ideologically speaking, it, it ran out of control and it eventually became the official creed. Yeah. Now we could talk about success or we could talk about destructiveness in, in a bit as well. But in, in terms of this physical evidence from the coin, as I understand it, the reason that we want to establish that the idea of Christians getting persecuted was a bit overblown is because you want to demonstrate that Christians would feel comfortable using the symbolism that's in this coin that you found and putting it, for example, in the catacombs and, and things like this, that the catacombs were not hiding places, that they were burial places where people would proudly 
um, you know, display, display their Christian Christianity and, and their hope of being saved in the, in the afterlife, et cetera, right? We have powerful – first, let me recommend a recent book by Candida Moss called The Myth of Persecution. It does an excellent job of reviewing the actual persecution for what it was under the Roman Empire. And there okay. was, in the first two centuries, practically none. <laughs> a little here and there, perhaps, but, uh, but very, very little, for obvious reasons, actually. We even have evidence from early Christian writers, such as Tertullian, which says that Roman governors went out of their way to, to get acquittals for Christians. It's only when Christianity grew to the point that it began to threaten official Roman paganism in the middle of the 3rd century that we see any law against Christianity, and that was only temporarily enforced. And then, of course, right. Constantine's competitor uh, is brutal to Christians, but that's because he's Constantine's competitor, and then Constantine turns around and legalizes it in the Edict of Nantes. Well, and, and, and the thing I was thinking of when when you were talking about that later there were these periods of of you know temporary persecution, I don't know that that's any different than what we have you know where the Democrats are going after the Republicans with the IRS and all that stuff either. I don't give any more significance to that. You see what I mean? Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, it just seems to me that so much needs explaining. Historians have explained very effectively how the Gospels cannot be treated as history, how they are, in effect, theological documents believed on faith and cannot be treated as historical documents. They're worked from sources, like the Old Testament, as I say, and so forth. What we do in our book is not so much explain that the Bible can't be relied upon as history. We explain what Christianity and the New Testament actually is, what it consists of, and, and how it began. And it's the substance of what Christianity is that's really being explained for the first time. Um, uh, in that sense, it's a revolution. And so on the face of it, it looks crazy because Christianity has presented itself, of course, as anti-Roman, when in fact it's extremely Roman. Roman coins of the first century, for example, proudly proclaim Pax, peace, or better yet, Pax Orbis Terrarum, peace on earth. A coin mm -hmm. struck at the very time that the Gospel of Luke is saying that angels declare that Jesus' birth is heralded by, quote, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Roman coins at the very time are heralding Pax Orbis Terrarum, Harmonia, Concordia, the very ideas, the precise ideas that the Gospel proclaims the, are, come with Jesus. Jesus in the Gospels, not only is he Messiah that's peaceful, which is paradoxical in itself, requiring explanation, but he is an internationalist. So spread the, world, the Gospel to all the people of the world. In other words, it's a direct assault on Jewish exceptionalism. The very notion that they have a covenant with God and that they're God's chosen people, chosen et cetera. People, right, right. Jesus explodes. Now, at a time of war with the Romans. Now, going now, going back to this this issue of of the coin, uh, two things. One, why is a coin so perfect to serve as a vehicle for propaganda? And then, second, explain a little more about the anchor and dolphin that is on the back of this Flavian era coin. Sure. Um, to represent God symbolically is forbidden under Judaism. It goes back to the Mosaic Law and one of the oldest principles of Jewish monotheism, no idol worship. To worship idols is to worship foreign gods, probably polytheistic gods. And so the Lord thy God, you can't even pronounce his name, Yahweh, out loud. That's what the Ten Commandments, don't take the Lord's name in vain, really means. You can't speak the name Yahweh. That itself is a death penalty blasphemy. You utter, articulate the word Yahweh, and you should be stoned to death. 
Wow. And so, it's, so, so too with symbolic physical images of God. Any idol, any symbol, or any representation of God is what's called a graven image. And that, too, is in the Ten Commandments. No graven images, no idols, and, of course, no gods before me. And so if you walk into a Jewish temple or synagogue, you'll see all kinds of symbols of menorahs and temple worship and things like that, but you'll see no symbolic representations of the divine, animal, human, or anything else. It's a sin. Now, Christians almost immediately began to use symbols, symbols for their followers and most dramatically symbols for Jesus. It's very interesting that they should ignore, just like they ignore kosher diet and circumcision, some of the essential features of Judaism so dramatically uh, and so early on. But they do, of course, and that needs explanation in itself. But what's interesting about the first symbol that they use that represents Jesus himself, it's an anchor with a fish represented around it. Of course, we know why a fish represents Jesus. The, the, the words Jesus Christ, Son of God, uh, is in, the first letter of each makes an anagram for the r- Greek word for fish, ichthus. Mm-hmm. And of course, right. in the Bible, Jesus uh, uses symbols all over the place. I'll make you fishers of men and so forth. And mm-hmm. so uh, the dolphin, what the ancients called the king of fish, makes a good symbol for Jesus. We all know that the early fish was an early symbol. But what a lot of people don't know is that it's the fish wrapped around an anchor that was actually the first symbol for Jesus. We see it in the earliest catacombs. We see it in one catacomb alone, 70 examples, versus just a dozen or so, maybe just a dozen, in all of the catacombs put together in the first three centuries. The cross does not replace the anchor and dolphin until the time of Constantine because of mm-hmm. his vision of the cross. Now, why why replace it? it, it I think you said that it's because they wanted to have a symbol once they were making order. it. It's right. They don't, they, they don't want to have the pagan. They want to have a, a symbol, the cross, which is exclusively Christian. Is that right? There were two previous uses of the dolphin wrapped around the anchor, historically speaking. The earliest one is the Hellenistic king of the Seleucids, who called himself the son of Apollo. Apollo's symbol was this anchor wrapped around a dolphin, as you can see at the island of Delos, where the divinity was born. Uh, according to Homer, Apollo had converted himself once into a dolphin, and so the, the symbol was uh, sacred to him. And an anchor, of course, is a symbol of safety and homecoming. So the mm-hmm. anchor and the dolphin sort of became a symbol of the benevolence of the god Apollo. The Seleucid kings claimed descent from this Apollo, and so they used that symbol uh, way back 300 or 200 years before Christ. It went out of use when the Seleucids sort of died out, and the Romans used similar symbols, but there were only two emperors who really used that symbol. The Emperor Titus, who destroyed the Mm -hmm. temple and claimed to be a Jewish messiah. Yes. And Hadrian, the guy in the the Roman emperor of the second Jewish war that happened in the 130s of the Common Era. So both times when Roman emperors were fighting Messianic Jews, they put off as a symbol for themselves the one symbol Christians used at the very same period for Jesus. Right, right. And, and, Why and on earth the- would Christians use the exact same single symbol that's in the coins then jingling in their pockets of a pagan Roman emperor, a man-god? Right. Exactly. The Romans so- used... The Romans used pagan religion that way. They didn't so much as invent religions as they sort of modified and adopted foreign religions, just as they had done with the Greek religion. And the Mm -hmm. first dynasty of Roman emperors claimed to be the descendants of Aeneas, a hero from Greek 
uh, literature, the the Iliad of Homer, uh, who came and alleged, allegedly founded the the uh, Latin people and eventually the Caesar dynasty itself. Well, the Flavians, Vespasian and his son Titus, were the second dynasty. And what I'm arguing is they did the, essentially the same thing, used a foreign religion to legitimize their rule. Instead of the yes. Greek religion, it was the Jewish religion. Right. But they didn't want the whole Jewish religion, so they wanted to make their version. Uh, the they version had to have that a modified make it. version. That first version was militant and anti-Roman. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, they wanted, I guess, life to be easier because they didn't have to keep kosher, etc., and also they wanted everyone to be peaceful and obedient and willing slaves and, and all that good stuff as well. So if, you know, and you create such a compelling case here, and I would tend to believe you, of course, I'm a lifelong atheist, so perhaps I'm not the toughest person to convince of your thesis per se. It's just for me to absorb all the evidence was the thing that was difficult for me because of my lack of familiarity. Um, Huge but, subject. And really, ex- it takes yeah. almost a certain degree of expertise to grasp. So I'm very forgiving if people say, I, you know, I, I'm not sure I don't understand all of it, especially Thank people you. who aren't familiar with it at all. I, I think I think I did pretty well. Though. But so you then, did amazing. No, but it, 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 it took it took me some work here, my my little brain. Um, but so here's the question: If this is created, right? We have a religion that is created by Roman emperors, the Christian religion. What are we to infer about other religions? Now, I have read the Quran. That is the one holy book that I've read from cover to cover. I've read the Quran, and I think it is just the funniest, silliest thing. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, it, 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 you it's know, definitely a, a work of fiction. The three great so monotheistic, you know, or called Islam, monotheistic, yeah, is, Abrahamic is religions, is sometimes called of today, really are the product of the Jewish war of the first and second centuries. It really was. Before the descriptions Josephus gives us of Judaism before that event are radically different than what Judaism looks like today. Uh, Two of the great uh, uh, sects of Judaism, for example, believed in resurrection or an afterlife in some form. And of course, mainline Judaism has no afterlife today. Um, So in the wake of the Jewish war, Judaism uh, became what we call rabbinic Judaism. Uh, one that de-emphasized nationalism and the concept of Messiah so that they could peaceably coexist as a minority within uh, foreign countries, um, the, and, and the very pro-Roman version of Judaism. The next, of course, the only form in which Jewish messianic worship continued in the Roman Empire is Christianity, a highly pacified, Hellenized form of the Jewish messianic religion that had once been so violent and militaristic. But we are told that the uh, militant Messianic Jews were utterly defeated, and the ones who were not enslaved or slaughtered were driven off into the desert to the south and maintained a very strict form of monotheism, a militant form of monotheism, which did not allow symbolic representations of the divine or even any of their prophets. They regard Jesus as a prophet but not a god. And so in many ways they start looking like our Jewish Christians who caused the Jewish rebellion, right? Terrorists extreme monotheists, people who say that the law should be the religious law. Um, And so let me suggest that uh, Islam are the great-grandchildren of the Jewish rebels who left the empire, still worshiping the Jewish god. But unlike unlike the conditions on the ground at the time there, we can have an answer to this, which is a purely military solution it's not like we have to have a government that creates a competing monotheistic religion we are beyond we don't do what the romans did and create a christianity 
right. as an ideological response. It was a typical kind of Roman response. But you see, the Romans had no problem with religious innovation. They had just created the whole cult of Roman emperors, mm -hmm. worshipping their emperors as gods. And so the Romans had no problem with such innovation and such religious fraud. Remember, Vespasian is the only known emperor to have ever performed miracles in his actual lifetime. And that had to be yeah. fraud at the very same time of the Gospels. So we know the Romans are engaged in religious fraud of that very sort at the very moment the Gospels were being written. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of the consequences of you know, what was done here, Roman emperors creating Christianity, probably they didn't anticipate or care about the fact that Christianity was going to go on perpetually through to this day and have such an effect. They couldn't have had any idea. So in in terms of the destructiveness i mean what would you say about that you know i th i think in the book you're you're fairly un uncommittal about it i don't know how much you want to talk about that but when you talk about well at first you know, christianity was a as a b bizarre inhuman destructive anti-life doctrine as you might imagine it destroyed paganism it wiped out aristotelianism it wiped out pagan science it destroyed libraries and temples when monotheism takes power over polytheism, it tends to wipe out all other forms of rule in a brutal way, and that's what happened in Rome. It accelerated the fall of classical civilization, and it caused the Dark Ages. So there could be nothing more destructive than the Neoplatonic mysticism that engulfed the Roman world and destroyed the classical civilization that I venerate so much. That being said, well, take for example, uh, Christians could not even engage in self-defense morally for the first thousand years of their history, right? Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Right. It was only Thomas right. Aquinas in the 13th century who finally made self-defense a moral option for your average Christian. Wow. So yeah. only by the late Middle Ages could Christianity become a livable doctrine. One that you, and again, Thomas Aquinas gave us Aristotle and observational science and logic. And so based on what happened in the Middle Ages, Christianity itself became altered thanks to the, the incredible work of a man like St. Thomas Aquinas and others, who introduced massive forms of uh, neo-paganism back into Christian culture, and Christianity itself became integrated with that paganism. And so Christianity today is, a, is in some ways a mixed bag, a complicated bag, and a powerfully dangerous bag because it's so philosophically well-integrated. Mm -hmm. So there are things, do I, do I love Christmas carols? Do I love Christmas music? Do I love stained glass? Are Michelangelo's statues the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life? Of course, I venerate some Christian art. I venerate and admire, admire the work of certain Christians, such as Thomas Aquinas, obviously. But Correct. on the whole, Christianity and mysticism in general has had a tremendously destructive impact on humanity. It's overcoming that influence that created the Renaissance and then the Enlightenment in the United States by people who ironically claim to be Christians. You know, um, I think we've definitely covered the, the waterfront here on the thesis. Do you, is there something that I have missed in terms of trying to give the audience here a good <laughs> no, overview? No, I'm sorry. You know, it seems like I was jamming a lot of complex information in for your book. No, I, th I think it's about the, r the right level. But, of course, again, I've digested the book, and maybe some of the readers have not. So yeah, I, I would I mean, urge the listeners have not. I would urge them to contact me through either Facebook or we have a new email, creatingchrist at gmail.com. 
If they want a hardcover, if they have questions of me, I'm happy to respond through there. We're thinking about coming out with a newsletter and so forth, so please contact me there, and you'll get on our list. So you're you're going to have a hardcover, and you said they need to write you either through Facebook or what is the email again? Repeat it, please. Creating Christ at symbol gmail.com. It's a Gmail Creating address. Creating Christ at gmail.com. Okay, and I'll go ahead and Created add for that. For anyone who's interested, we intend to have a hardcover, and if you're interested in one and you want me to send you one, just let me know. That is beautiful because that's one of the questions that I've had here in the chat room. One question for you, James. When you see that... Roman emperors, for the sake of consolidating their power, create this religion. Does it at all give you pause in terms of the appeal of anarchism? <laughs> that that just government is really bad because it does things like create Christianity. Um, radically, I don't really get into it in the book, but obviously it's a radical anti-statist thesis. So it's the relationship mm-hmm. between what Ayn Rand called the witch doctor and the Attila. Mm-hmm. You know, Ayn Rand said that altruism had no earthly reason, and there's no earthly reason for it. Of course, so what's its real motive? Ellsworth Tui was really clear. Where there's someone asking for sacrifice, there's usually someone collecting those sacrifices. Tui meant Stalin's and Hitler's. Uh, I, I, I show that Ayn Rand was more right than she realized about Christian altruism. It's so extreme. Love your enemy. Turn the other cheek. Make yourself a schmoo. Uh, that it requires some kind of political power grab explanation, in my view, and the cultural and political context of the time have simply been inadequately used to explain Christianity. And it just it gives you a huge, huge bit of evidence of the potential danger that government poses for human life. In my view, it's just another piece of that information. I'm still myself of the view that we could actually have a limited government founded on the principle of individual rights with a constitution and everything else. It needs a strict First Amendment where the government stays out of the business of religion and abstract philosophy altogether. Right, right. That's, That's the solution there, correct? Well, I I thank you very much, uh, James. I don't know if you've been over at the blog, but I put a couple musical selections, and one of them was for you, which is, we've talked about this before, uh, Stamina, right? Yeah. The song. Appropriate, yes. (laughs) Yeah, and... and, Thank you you very much. Well, and resilience and and the idea of of hope. And I don't know, at some point, maybe we do need to do an entire discussion and figure out where we left that whole discussion of, of hope where do we where do we stand on on uh, you know the, the value of hope of course hope was mentioned uh, in some of the religious materials in, in your book as, as well um, uh, you know as, as something important so we could actually a, bring real sign of hope I keep my fingers crossed <laughs> and I'm not superstitious <laughs> oh you know what? One more thing. What what has the response been? I've seen positive reviews, for instance, from the Professor Eisman that you mentioned. Um, I am blown away by that. You know, the, the kind words that he said, you know, uh, are are uh, just blow me away. Uh, uh, I, we think that we do have the best arguments within this field of scholarship. We do not demand a lot of exotic. We stick with the standard datings. We don't require any exotic, you know, like uh, Joseph Atwell, another writer in the theory. He earlier said of a version of our book that it was the best he'd ever read on the subject. And we are not nearly so demanding. We don't require 
exotic, you know, going out on a limb on various things that he does, or or Eisenman, who requires a unique dating of the Dead Sea Scrolls. No, we stick to much more standard critical scholarship, and uh, we try to make it as easy for the layman to understand as possible. Right, and and that is the real power of your thesis, is that your thesis is the one thing that can best explain the totality of the evidence without trying to interpret any of the evidence in any kind of contorted way. It's just very straightforward looking at the evidence. What is the most logical explanation? If, you know, it wasn't a Flavian emperor that was creating this, would there be anything different about this? You know, you see what I mean? It must exactly. have been because, yeah. Exactly. Um, it, it explains features of Christianity. Yes, and, and, it, and it really does as, as I go through it. It looks like in the chat room that there are other people who are in the sh same shoes as I was in terms of having some of the same confusions that I was pressing with you. So that was good. I'm glad that this interview helped to kind of clear up some things that other people were confused about as well. Uh, I, th I thank you very much, James. I'm glad we finally did get to do this, and I look forward to speaking with you on my show again um, about all the all the various topics. I don't know if you want to, do you want to weigh in briefly on, um, on this whole Trump thing? Do, do we judge? I will let you, I will let you handle that. My voice is starting to get out. Okay. But thank you your very much. Your voice is starting to go wonderful. this time. Okay. Well, thank you, James. And then, uh, will everyone continue your discussion with James on, on Facebook, or you said it's creating Christ at gmail.com, right? Thank you. Great. Thank you. You take care. Okay, everyone, if you want to continue a discussion with me, the place to do so is over at my blog at don'tletitgo.com. At the blog, I've also got one little piece of music other than Stamina, which was a favorite of James, or at least it's something that James and I have in common that we both really like that song. I, I'm not going to say it's necessarily one of his favorites, but he's expressed a liking for it. And then I've got this other song that I just discovered yesterday using Shazam in a Chipotle. <laughs> kind of random. And apparently I'm really behind the ball on this because if you go to the Vivo website, you'll see that it's got 36 million views or whatever. So you guys probably already know about this song, but if you don't, it's a funky little song. It's a song by Phoebe Kildare called Fade Outlines. And then there's somebody called the Avener, who I never knew of before yesterday, who apparently has good taste in music and does cool little remixes of songs. So if you're ignorant like me, then you may benefit from my music selections as well as my interview here with James today. So next week I'm on vacation. I will be back in two weeks. So again, that's two weeks from today. I will talk to you at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 p.m. Pacific, right here. Take care, everyone. <laughs>